Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. I had a communications professor at Illinois State University remind me constantly of a theory that he himself helped to initiate. It had to do with disclosure of information and vulnerability in communication and how we often begin introductions with what he referred to as memory organizational packets or MOPs. And in college, that usually meant something like your name, what class you're in, and what your major is. You'd be asked that in every class. You'd have to do that for icebreakers. You might talk about it at various social events. Perhaps if you were slightly inebriated or even if you were feeling sick, you could probably effortlessly recite that bit of information from rote memory. 
I always wanted to mix it up a little bit whenever we were doing introductions in class and say something like, my name's Grant Armstrong and I'm a sheep herder from Scotland and I'm here on a bagpipe scholarship, but I never got the nerve. <laughs> the adult version of this practice might be something like, what's your name and where do you work? Or where you're from, or your name and where your kids go to school, or your name and what you did before you retired. We don't really do anything to wrap our age into that package at a certain point, and that's on purpose. The requisite information may change, but we get into these habits of introducing ourselves with these memory organizational packets. Did you ever think that there is just not really a customary way for God to make an introduction? I mean, Adam woke up and saw the face of the one who breathed life into him, and that was like being introduced to a parent. You don't really say, hi, I'm dad, I'm going to provide for all your needs. I know you don't really understand my words, but perhaps you'll recognize that I'm kind by the tone of my voice. You just have this relationship with someone who is there for you, or not, and you figure out who they are from their presence or their lack of presence. If we do a little timeline here, we recognize that God hadn't really done an introduction for about 400 years, nor really since Joseph moved his father and his family into the Goshen land of Egypt to flee from famine. The enslaved Hebrew people probably heard stories of their origins and how they ended up in captivity of a superpower, but those stories had to seem like tall tales and pure legend during that point in the late Bronze Age. It seems the God who made covenant with these chosen people to carry them into a promised land could stand to make another introduction. God couldn't exactly start with name, class, and major, however. That leads to our first lesson. God rarely uses burning bushes to make an introduction. God rarely uses burning bushes to make an introduction. Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush, and Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called from the middle of the burning bush and said, Moses, Moses, here I am, he replied. I've seen a lot of church-going folks get absolutely sidelined because they've spent a good portion of their lives waiting for God to show up in a burning bush or some kind of miraculous sign. I'll believe when I get a clear sign from God. I'll take on a ministry role when I see a burning bush. I'll follow this once-in-history type of theophany, which is a theology term that theology nerds use for when God shows up. Theophany, God appears. God became manifest in a bush that was burning but not consumed one known time simultaneously to one of God's most epic instances of rescue from oppression and slavery. And some people wait for that kind of sign to determine whether or not they should help out with like kindergarten Sunday school. That level of sign may not happen, but God does desire to get our attention. Maybe it's not God throwing off our routine but God will use a throne routine to make an introduction. Maybe it's a health scare. Maybe it's a promotion at work. Maybe it's a new baby in the family or a church crisis. Maybe it's a mission trip or a camp. Maybe it's a particularly beautiful sunrise. I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's a passage of Scripture that just lands in a different way that you've never heard it before 
Any one of those things can serve as an introduction from a God who really wants to get to know you better. And in any of those instances, we can do worse than to turn our attention to the presence of God in that moment and say, here I am. That leads to our second lesson. God will use familiar connections to help us understand who God is. God will use familiar connections to help us understand who God is. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. I recently got to spend some time on holy ground. This time last week, I was traveling back from Israel, where I had the opportunity to visit places that the ancients saw as profoundly holy, and many revere as holy today. I had a chance to stand in the ruins of ancient Jericho where Moses' successor, Joshua, fell to his face in reverence and the commander of the Lord's army told him to remove his sandals because he stood on holy ground. I walked on the Temple Mount near the place the Hebrews understood as the dwelling place of the Most High, a place so holy that a Levite, having undergone proper ritual cleansing, alone could enter into the Most Holy Place cautiously once a year. And I was nearer to that location than a Gentile could have imagined getting to that location at the time of the Temple. We could kneel and touch the stone that tradition acknowledges as the hill of Calvary, the sacred place where Jesus bled and died, a place where the victory of universal and eternal proportions was waged and won on our behalf. And whenever I read these passages of scripture, I have these images in my mind formed from my experiences that are now intricately connected with those locations, those connections of being in these holy places, make these stories absolutely come to life. God is masterful at making connections. Teachers know that building connections is a priceless pedagogical tool. You introduce new concepts by connecting the new learning with existing knowledge. Sometimes it's through things students have memorized by rote. Sometimes it's through stories and allegory. Sometimes it's through practical application. Bridges are built between concepts to help strengthen a student's grasp on new information. We have to wonder, in hearing the names of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, did Moses grow up in Pharaoh's house hearing the stories of these ancient fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, maybe from his mother Yochaved as she nursed him? Did he overhear these stories from the Hebrew slaves as he wandered among the people, somewhat aware of his roots? Did the enslaved Hebrew children know that they were people of the covenant promise of God who made these promises to their ancient fathers? Were these stories part of what helped them to hold on to hope through their time of oppression? God trusted that these names would help the hurting Hebrew people know that the God who had promised great things to them before would prove himself faithful by liberating them from suffering. He believed the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be known to Moses and known to the captive Israelites. And God will make connections like that for us too. For some, maybe it's the image of a father that helps God to draw near. For others, it's the concept of a creator. For others, maybe a rescuer. For some, it's knowledge that God is like a hen spreading her protective wings over her chicks. For others, it's friend. 
While some of these connections ring more true in our minds than others, these are all true images of who God is that God has painted for us in Scripture. These are connections through familiar images that invite us to draw near to this holy ground of intimacy with God. Our third lesson this morning is we are empowered by intimacy with God. The Lord said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of the harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. Moses protested, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people, Israel, out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you. And this is the sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. One of the things that I really miss One of the few things that I miss is my time as a radio reporter in the St. Louis area. I had a placard that I could put in the front of my car, and it said, Reporter on Assignment With, and it had the station name there. And I could basically park anywhere but a place that was designated as wheelchair accessible. I knew for a fact that that privilege had nothing to do with me. Granted, I wanted to get good information to help foster good awareness in the public, but that's not why they were lenient with me parking just about anywhere. It's not even necessarily because the call letters of the station I worked for, although that probably helped a little. Mostly, I think it's because there were folks who would have been in a position to enforce parking, enjoyed the afternoon show of the station that I worked for, and they knew the show's participants were supporters of local law enforcement. Me and my green, idealistic reporter's notepad and reporting device received some very convenient access to some fairly inaccessible places, largely on the favorability and credibility of a station and maybe some of the folks who work there. I knew it. It wasn't anything I'd earned, but I got to reap the benefit and it helped me to do the work that I was supposed to do. Have you ever been granted access to something based on someone else's credibility or somebody else's authority? Have you gotten into a meet and greet at a concert or a game? Have you had a chance to schedule an appointment because of a name that you could drop? Or maybe you were more able to receive a job promotion or consideration because somebody in a high place was willing to vouch for you. You had your part to do, but a particular door was opened because of somebody else's name. God wanted to do that for Moses. Moses carried some authority in Egypt once, but he had been cast out in shame years ago. His name may have held some affection in the Pharaoh's family, maybe, but it would take something more than the name of Moses to accomplish what God wanted to do. If we take seriously the story to which God has invited us, we'll find that it takes more than our names to accomplish our part in this epic mission story. Because in the comfort of this place, we sometimes forget that there is still a modern-day slave trade and financial and physical exploitation, that there's still violence and oppression keeping people in bondage all around the world and even around the corner. There are people who are addicted to things that will drag them to sorrow and isolation and death, and those things don't all come with warning labels. And there isn't a God 
who loves us more than we could possibly imagine. But unless we confront those obstacles with the courage and strength and authority of God, our names will barely make a dent. I am who I am. Who is going with me? Who safeguards me? Who is the power that compels me? God didn't respond, I'll get there. Or I used to be there. Who is with you? God responds, I am. There are people in here who need to know the power of a God who is desperate to save and love them. And drawing close to God has never been a consideration. There are folks who have a bold mission to take on. And it will never get off the ground unless we get serious about nurturing intimacy with a God who desires to be known. This is a church that's about to stir an awakening and bring about fires of revival if we just get to know the heart of God who desires to be known, who wants to come near to us, but it means that we come near to God. And so we'll spend Lent allowing Jesus to tell us what we can expect when God draws near to us and offers an introduction. When Jesus gives us these familiar connections to help us know who he desires to be in our lives. And when we get to know Christ in those ways that he desires, our lives are never the same. There's a powerful introduction that Jesus offers to us at the table of communion. Jesus gives us these incredible words to let us know how it is through simple and familiar things we can make this connection for what God desires to do in our lives. When he paints this picture for us of his body and blood being wine and bread, then we have a better understanding of what Christ desires to be for us. So as we draw to the table today, this is one of the ways that Jesus offers an introduction to us. This is how you can experience me. This is how you can be drawn into my power. One of the things that we get to do this morning is offer a blessing for our confirmation students as well. And so on either side of the rails, there are necklaces. They're confirmation necklaces that say confirmed in Christ. It's got a little Methodist cross on there. And so I would invite you to take a moment and pray over those crosses. Pray that as these students are spending time in this experience of confirmation, that they would have a chance to know the introduction of God and that their lives would be shaped and transformed by that. If there's a specific confirmation student that you're interested in, you can feel free to wander from side to side. You're welcome to do that or just offer a blanket prayer for all of them. That's certainly a gift. But that's one of the ways that we can help others to experience the nearness of God through this act of communion.